0: Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Last Sunday, we looked at and asked the questions, What is the Gospel? Why is it good news? In the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, a stranger, Jesus joins their conversation, and he retells the whole story of the Old Testament beginning with Moses, the Torah, and through the prophets, and showed how that Jesus was the fulfillment that he had to suffer these things. This is how it was for people who lived in the Old Testament or in the light of the Old Testament. But for those of us who live after the resurrection of Jesus, what we find is that the end of the story breaks through in the middle of the story. And we are given insight and understanding as to where the story is headed, because the end has already broken through in the middle. The new creation is the end of the story. This is the purpose, the us, if you wish, of creation and redemption. It is in the Great Commission that the followers of Jesus are entrusted with that story and the responsibility of proclaiming the story. The story is the good news, the gospel. And Jesus commissions his disciples to proclaim the good news. As we saw last week in Mark 16, and he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In Matthew's account, we read, Go and make disciples of all nations. And in Luke's account, found in Acts chapter 1, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. However, as we saw last week, it seems that in the past few centuries, the Christian gospel or good news has ceased to become good news, something to be proclaimed, but rather it is spoken of as advice. So that if you talk about the Christian faith, most people, even many Christians, imagine that you're talking about an option that someone might or might not want to take up if they felt so inclined. A piece of advice. For some, it is a new kind of spirituality, a Jesus-focused interior life, for those who want that kind of thing. For others, it is a new way of living, a Jesus-based morality, that for you or your community might want to sort of follow this pattern. For still others, it is an option for the future, taking out an option on the future, a kind of retirement plan, to make sure that you survive, if nobody else does, at least you will in the future. None of these is totally wrong. The message of Jesus and the message about Jesus do include, in fact, something about spirituality, something about morality, something about the ultimate future. But they miss the main point, if this is all that they say. The message of Jesus was not good advice, it was good news. And as we saw last Sunday, for something to qualify as news, particularly in our case, we want good news, there need to be at least four things. First of all, an announcement of an event that has already happened. So news doesn't say this is what's happening, this, is, this has happened, or this will happen. No, no, it is a proclamation of something that has happened. Secondly, there is a, a larger context, that this story isn't just out of nowhere, there is a backstory, if you wish, that helps explain why this is good news. Thirdly, it is a revealing of what is going to happen in the future, and lastly, it is a transformation of the present moment. Because I've been told something has happened which is going to transform the future, it transforms this moment as well. So when Paul and the apostles told people the good news, they were not inviting people to a new way of thinking or a new way of living that would enable them to think and live differently. He was telling them, the apostles were telling people, something that had happened which would change, in fact, had changed the world. The world is now a different place because the end of the story has broken through here in the middle of things. Paul is summoning people to be a part of that new and different reality. One of the problems that we find with regard to the gospel today is that people have embraced or in fact assumed a different backstory. Many people, even some Christians, have assumed a different context. For many people today, it goes something like this. We know we're all going to die. And so what we want is to make sure that we have life after death. And now that we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, we know that there is, in fact, life after death. And that's the good news. Well, this and many other variations, in fact, are a caricature of the good news. They lack the right backstory. And as we saw last week, when Paul speaks about the resurrection, he says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the backstory. It is the context. It isn't just this miraculous event that happens in the midst of human history. It is, in fact, God's plan to rescue the world. And there is this context, this huge backstory that goes to it. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, he mentions that many people, in fact, have rejected the good news. In part because their backstory is quite different. For the Jews, the backstory of the Messiah was that he was supposed to come and defeat the Romans. He was going to defeat the Gentiles, the enemies of the Jews, not be killed by them. And certainly not to be killed in such a shameful way, to be crucified, which is not only shameful in that context, but in the backstory, we are told, they are told that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. So their backstory does not allow for Jesus to be the Messiah. The Gentiles, on the other hand, particularly the Greeks, do not believe in a resurrection. They believe that when you're dead, that's it. And so they reject the message, the good news, because their backstory does not not match the good news. But as we saw, not all people have rejected the good news. Because something happens when it is proclaimed. There is a transformation. It transforms people. By God's grace, it transforms them. And by His grace, we have been transformed. We have heard the good news. An announcement has been made of an event that has happened that there's a larger backstory or context to it. It reveals what is going to happen in the future and it transforms our present moment. But as I asked at the end of the sermon last week, do we believe it? Yes, we do believe that Jesus came, taught, was put to death, was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. But do we have a right sense of the backstory which allows the gospel to make sense? Do we believe that it transform our present moment? Do we believe that in the resurrection, we have the end of the story that crashes through, that breaks through the middle of the story, and it explains everything that happens before and everything that happens after? With this in mind, I want us to consider the question in the new series, why is it so hard to believe the gospel in today's world? Why has the gospel ceased to be good news? even to those who claim to believe it. At the beginning of the 20th century, the number of atheists in the world, we are told by statisticians, was one-fifth of one percent. By the end of the 20th century, we go from 0.2% to 20%. Over one-fifth of the world's population no longer believes that God exists. It's by far in the 20th century the most extraordinary change, the religious map. In the study, what I want us to do is to consider historical developments, cultural trends, sociological shifts, as to explain why this has happened and why it is so difficult, even for us, God's people, to believe the gospel today. But it is not my intent to give a series of lectures, rather a series of sermons, And so it seems to me it would be appropriate for us to begin by looking at and understanding a theology of belief and unbelief. As we have done with other matters in scripture, we have considered things and we will consider today belief and unbelief in the light of creation, fall and redemption, which points to the new creation. We will get to our text, by the way, later in the sermon. In creation, there are several things that we need to be reminded of and to remember with regard to creation. First of all, it was not finished or it was not completed. This is seen in a number of things, but I will mention one, and that is the dominion mandate. When man is told, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Why subdue something if, in fact, it is complete or it is finished? because it is not finished. It is not complete. The Garden of Eden was different. We read in Genesis 2, 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The whole planet was not Eden. The planet needed to be subdued because the work of creation is not finished because, as we've seen Second thing is that creation is pointing to something else. It is not the end of the story in and of itself. It is not the telos, if you wish. It is pointing to the new creation. So creation is in process. It is in process, and humanity is to be, the, is to take the lead in this, to subdue and prepare creation as we head to the new creation. The process is seen clearly in the story of Adam and Eve. God puts them in the Garden of Eden. Eden was not symbolic. It was a locality. Um, It was a place God had prepared for man. You see, when God made Adam, and then later Eve, man was inexperienced. He was a fledgling, if you wish. And so God puts him in a place where he is sheltered, but he is not smothered. Eden is to be a school. Here he is supposed to learn discoveries await him encounters await him and here he is to learn he is to grow he is mature before God says "Okay, now it's time to leave the the garden and go out and subdue creation and so we see that there is a spiritual awakening man is given a divine word a command you are free to eat in verse number 16 you must not eat in verse number 17 the foundation is that God is the creator and man is made in his image. Man is the creature is supposed to do as he is told. There's also a cultural awakening, which is hinted at, it's not spelled out, but we see that as the writer describes Eden, it is in fact spoken of in terms of beauty and diversity. It isn't simply a utilitarian we got trees over here, we got plants over here, and, you know, fruit over here, vegetables over here. It is described as a place of beauty. And here, man can come to appreciate the beauty of God's creation. And then there is social awakening. And this, I think, is one of the more beautiful passages that we see when God makes Eve, and He brings Eve to Adam, and Adam breaks out in song. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But each of these were, in fact, precisely that, an awakening. There was to be learning, there was to be growth, there was to be progress. Think of Adam's relationship with Eve before the fall. Did it remain the same, or was there growth? I think there was, in fact, to be growth, as in everything else. Man is to grow unto his knowledge, and I think the day would have come, had they not sinned, when God would have given them the knowledge of good and evil. But they're not ready for it then. It's like asking a first grader to do calculus. They're not ready to do that. And so God says, don't do that. It is in the arena of spiritual awakening and learning that we come to the matter of belief. And here we begin our theology of belief. And what we find is that those who are made in the image of the Creator are to trust they are to believe the Creator. The Creator is to be trusted specifically in two areas. That He will command only what is right. And secondly, He will promise only what is true. And this, I think, is exemplified best in the, knowledge of the, tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from the tree. And this is where the serpent attacks Eve's belief specifically in terms of the command and the promise he said to the woman did god really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden questioning the command did he really say that and then later on he said you will not surely die that is he challenges the promise that god had made god knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil And as we know, Eve chose not to believe God. She did not trust that he was commanding what was right. And she did not trust that his promises were true. Belief is seen in obedience. Unbelief is seen in disobedience. And so Eve disobeyed because she did not believe. And she disobeyed God and gave Adam to eat as well. And the great separation happened. That is belief and unbelief in creation. Now we come to the fall. Unbelief is what led to the fall of creation. And as a result, unbelief is a default setting of every human being born into the world. To the point that we cannot believe God on our own. Apart from the grace of God, we cannot believe. We cannot trust God. There is something within us that refuses to trust that his commands are right and that his promises are true. On the one hand, you could say, well, it's just because we are fallen that there's this mistrust, that we, we don't see things clearly. It's like a child who challenges a parent saying, I, I don't think you know what you're talking about. But on the other hand, there is, in fact, a moral resistance within us that we do not want to believe. We do not trust God. Now we come to redemption. And as we saw in the series on creation, redemption is not intended as a return to the original state. It is not a return to Eden. It's interesting that many people, even non-Christians, speak of a utopia which is a return to Eden. And this is not what God intends. What is intended is the new creation. And with, as with creation in redemption, belief is is key. The Creator, the Redeemer, is to be trusted, that He commands only what is right, and He promises only what is true. One of the pivotal characters in Scripture in this regard is Abraham, who is found not only in the Old Testament, but is referred to time and again in the New Testament as an example of belief. Now we come to our text in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, James seeks to correct, I think, a, a misconception on the part of his readers um, with regard to faith. That somehow belief is, is just sheer mental assent. It is like, yes, I believe that, but without any uh, consequences, without any implications, without any results. And James is like, this is simply not the case. And so he gives four illustrations. The first is a brother and sister who is in need. Uh, and they need food, they need clothing, then the demons who believe, Abraham who offers Isaac, and then lastly Rahab the prostitute who hid the spies. And if you're taking notes, you'll notice that in verses 17, 20, 24, and 26, at the end of each illustration, if you wish, James tells us what he wants us to know. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse number 20, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Verse 24, you see that a man is justified, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And then lastly, in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Again, just a side note. The first two illustrations are negative, the second two are positive. The first and the last illustrations deal with our our dealings with human beings, with our fellow humans, and then two and three deal with our relationship to God. So what is genuine faith? Well, James gives us the example of Abraham. um, And he tries to be provocative. I think James knows exactly what he's doing, but he's trying to provoke his readers. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Do you know the story? Do you remember the story that's mentioned in verse number 21? It's found in Genesis chapter 22. Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. He was 100, she was 90. They had waited 25 years for this miraculous child, the child of promise. And then one day, God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. I find that very striking, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains I will tell you about. And then amazingly we read that early the next morning Abraham got up with Isaac and two servants. And on the third day of traveling they reached the place that God had told him. Abraham and Isaac went up alone. Abraham built an altar. He put wood on it. He tied up his son. Put him on the altar and took out a knife to kill him. When he was stopped by the angel of the Lord. Abraham saw that there was a ram. He turned and saw a ram caught in the thicket, and he took that ram and sacrificed it in the place of his son Isaac. It is this incident to which James refers. And as he begins in verse number 22, you'll see he says, you see, making three points here, that faith promotes works. They're not an exercise in and of themselves. Faith needs works, and faith precedes works. And this is verse number 23. This is an important part of the argument, and I think it's one of the things that people tend to miss. If you look at verse number 23, and if you have a, a reference Bible that tells you where this comes from, you will notice that it comes from Genesis chapter 15, in verse number 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and was credited to him as righteousness. If you don't know better, you might think that what James is saying is because of what he did with Isaac, Because he believed God then and didn't kill, or that he was willing to kill Isaac, that's why he was seen as righteous. No. The passage in Genesis 15 happens 15 years before Isaac is even born. So it may have happened 25 years, maybe even longer, before Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son. This is the backstory that James assumes his readers know. They are Jews. They should know the story. Ten years. Of the startle, when God called Abraham, he made him a promise. And ten years later, we have that promise repeated. And it is at that point in Genesis 15, Abraham believes God. And it is credited to him as righteousness. Fifteen years later, Isaac comes along. And then some period after that, we don't know, let's say ten years after that, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son. How do we know that Abraham believed God? Because he was willing to offer his son Isaac. But that's not when the belief started. The belief started much earlier than that. That is the backstory. He trusted God. That God would command only what is right, and He would promise only what is true. Abraham's belief was not mere affirmation. After all, the demons believe and tremble, we're told earlier in the chapter. Um, No, his belief is seen in his actions. It is true faith demonstrated in obedience. And even though Abraham was centuries before the coming of Jesus into the world, his belief is the pattern. In redemption, we are to trust the Redeemer, the Creator. The resurrection of Jesus, as I've said, is the end of the story that breaks through in the middle of the story. And as people of the new creation, because the end has come in and now we are after the resurrection, Paul tells the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The end of the story has come through so we know how things are going to turn out. If we are God's people in the new creation, in the new age, belief is the mark of God's people. It is the chief characteristic of the new age. Remember that good news is in fact the transformation of the present moment with a huge backstory to it. And with a revealing of what the future brings, or will bring. And we see this in the the return of Jesus from the dead. He's raised from the dead. We should not be surprised that belief is there. Belief is there at the beginning in creation. We see it also in redemption. Again, not a return to Eden. But it is, in fact, this is what God calls his people to do. In the fallen world, our default setting is unbelief. We do not want to believe. We do not trust God, frankly. Uh, the, The things he commands seem bizarre. Given our particular culture, we're more, you know, back in the olden days, and centuries ago, these people were primitive, and so, yeah, they might believe this stuff, but we know far better than that. And the promises, where is the fulfilling of the promises that he has made? Here we are some 20 centuries, 21 centuries after the coming of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, and we are called to believe. Just as Abraham was called to believe some 20 centuries before Jesus came into the world. Now, we know that Abraham and Sarah had good reasons not to believe. When God first made the promise, Abraham was 75, Sarah was 65. The promise is repeated and repeated. The last time that the promise is spoken, he is 99 and Sarah is 89. They have, one could say, good and sufficient reasons not to believe God. But in fact, Abraham does believe God. He does believe God. And the promise is fulfilled. Why is it so hard for us to believe? Abraham lived before the coming of Jesus some 20 centuries before. We're 20 centuries after. Why is it so hard for us to believe? I will grant you that the fact that we are sinners has a lot to do with it, but the world has changed and has sought to reinforce in many ways, has sought to justify the default setting of unbelief, or failing that, the whole nature of belief has been sort of tweaked by the modern world, so that what the Bible speaks of as belief and what we think of as belief oftentimes are not really related. We will be examining this in the weeks to come, but just to give you several examples. Augustine of Hippo asserted, Crede ut intelligas. Believe in order that you may understand. That is to say, you must believe something in order to understand. To know anything. I think we would say. Uh, Augustine. Um, wrote a lot of great stuff. A brilliant mind. But I, we think you've missed the boat here. See for us. we I think we've come to believe. That in fact you must understand something. Before you can believe it. And if you think about it. Oftentimes much of our sharing, if you wish, much of our witnessing, our apologetics, here is the gospel. We want people to understand, we want them to know, and then when we give them all this information, then in fact they will come to believe. Um, This is not what we find in scripture, and this is certainly not what we find in the early church. We have a radically different view of belief. Not only that, we live in a time in which those who do believe in truth have concluded that it can come by reason alone. And so there is the faith versus reason. Do you believe or do you know? It's these these big dichotomies. And then there's the whole question of knowing. If I were to ask you, but let's, let's keep it... Let's not embarrass ourselves... When I say to you, what is knowledge? I think most of us would say that knowledge is information, it is facts, it is statements, it is proofs. And knowledge is seen as consisting exclusively of pieces of information. We just assume that knowledge is information. And along with this understanding of knowledge people have come to believe that certainty is the goal for knowledge. And so, you can't be certain about the things you believe. You you believe something because you're really not certain. On the other hand, if you know something, you are certain. And suddenly it becomes much more difficult to believe because... Here I am over in the camp of belief, not really quite being certain. And all these people over here are knowing things. They are certain. They have this information. The reality is, in our world, other forms of awareness are excluded. It's all knowledge. That if you can't know something, then it's not... You can't be certain, then it, it can't be true. So intuition, for example, or emotions... Uh, all these things are sort of maybe put over in the category of belief, that those uncertain things, whereas knowledge is certain. It is certainty. But this is to get ahead of ourselves. Um, in the weeks to come, the Lord willing, we will examine what has happened. And why is it in the modern world things have conspired? I, I told myself I wasn't going to use that word. But things have in fact come together to challenge our desire to believe, to trust the Creator, that His commands are true, that His promises are right. Um, instead, calls us to know something. It, it is almost the Pied Piper promising certainty that these things you can know. You don't have to be over there anymore where you just believe things and you you have this feeling, this intuition that these things are true. Here we will tell you what is absolutely true. And so for Adam and Eve, the temptation was the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. I think for us, it's simply the tree of knowledge, period. That we can know these things for certain and the Christian faith is somehow put into a ghetto of belief, and we who are God's people, who truly believe the good news, that Christ has come, that he has transformed us, and that this is all headed to the new creation, we find it sometimes that we are just hanging on by our fingernails for dear life, saying, I Like the man with the demon-possessed son, I believe, help me with my unbelief. It becomes more and more difficult for us. But as in creation, so it is in redemption. In the new creation, we are called to trust God. That God commands only what is right, and he promises only what is true. And the Lord willing, we will see this, we will examine it, And what it is that we as God's people should do about it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to be people of belief. We are here today because we believe. And yet there are moments, sometimes more than moments, in which we struggle whole matter of believing there seems to be an unreality of it we seem to be out of step with our culture we seem to be out of step with the movement of history even we can understand why it was hard for Abraham to believe after all he was an old man and his wife was an old woman how could they have a child we may not be so quick to understand why it is hard for us to believe. And I pray that by your grace and your spirit, we would come to see this in the weeks to come. As sinners, our default setting is unbelief. As your people whom you are redeeming, you've called us to faith, to believe, to trust. Give us the grace we need to believe. Again, we pray for those that aren't with us today who are traveling, that you would keep them safe. Those that are sick, that you would touch them. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence with us as we walk through the world in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.